What could be more fun? Two mathematicians. <laughs> Two dynamicists. <laughs> I know. So I've been thinking about that. I mean, to me, it shows the vastness of the subject of math, that, that here's dynamics. It's a little, it's a corner of the subject. And yet, even within that corner, there's your whole world. But like, I haven't really lived in your world. And I get the feeling you've only just recently started to put your toe into my world. Yeah, I kind of feel that way, too. I'm thinking of myself as doing applications of dynamical systems to, to science, um, biology, physics, social science. And I think of you as doing dynamics within math itself. Right, right. You might say, like, pure dynamics, I guess. Yeah, pure. I love it. From Quanta Magazine, this is the joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Amy Wilkinson... I think one of the defining characteristics of Amy Wilkinson, she is so vigorous. She's a, a person of motion and energy, and it's really fitting because her subject is dynamics, which is the study of how things move, but, but in a very abstract sense. She's a pure mathematician, a pure dynamicist. And it's really interesting to me because I also am interested in dynamics and motion, but from a very applied perspective. And so sparks fly, we have some fun together. One of the things that has obsessed Amy in her career is the study of chaos, which, as it sounds like, is unpredictable, seemingly random motion. But what's so interesting in the kind of chaos that she studies is that it's governed by perfectly predictable deterministic rules. It's just that the consequences of the rules may not be predictable in the long run. She looks at chaos very geometrically, very visually, and she uses ironclad logic to extract predictions and and conclusions about the things she studied that really often defy intuition. Some of her work is, is truly mind-bending, and yet it's as tight as a, a proof from Euclidean geometry. So Amy and I had this conversation during the pandemic, which meant that we had to improvise a little bit since we couldn't go into the studio. I was upstairs in my attic. She was downstairs in her basement. The thing about math is if, if it's something that you're good at and interested in, it often gets, although not always, but it often gets identified pretty early. So I was like a math kid starting probably in kindergarten, you know. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. How, how does that happen? Did you, does, was someone giving you puzzles? Like are your parents the type who would ask you to think about arithmetic when you were five years old? No, not at all. But I was in, not no, at all, huh? they weren't really like that. But I was in a Montessori school for oh. preschool and kindergarten. And I don't know if you know yeah. about their, their methods, but there's a lot of mathematics incorporated into the tools that they use. And it's a mm -hmm. play-based model. And I still remember the location of the various toys. <laughs> um, I totally do. It's it's funny. Really? Yeah. You can picture the box that had all yes. the... Yes. <laughs> I don't know what. Like, what kind of well, things? Well, there, there were the number chains. They were made of beads. It, it was sort of designed to teach children how to count in different bases and also how to visualize, like, a number, a number squared, a number cubed. And so, I mean, it was almost like a logarithmic scale secretly mm -hmm. being taught. There were these individual beads that you would line up till you got to the numbers. The 10 chain took the most work. So of course that was the one I liked. 
So you would line up <laughs> 10 beads until you got to 10, and then you would put a little yeah. marker if it said 10. And then there were beads arranged in a line of 10 and, and on a piece of wire. And so then you'd line up 10 or nine more of those until you'd done 100 beads. You put a little okay. marker, and then there were squares of beads, and you'd line up the squares of beads. But you would use the beads to count up to 1,000. And at the very end, but, your prize was to put down a 10 by 10 by 10 well, cube a with 1,000 beads see. on it. And, and you would have, in the process, constructed this long chain of beads, maybe, I don't know, like 10 feet long or something. So you were curious about patterns, it sounds like, mm -hmm. with these number chains. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, it's always very pat to, to like try to see the, the adult in the child. Yeah. But then again, there's often some truth to it. Do you think that your five-year-old self was a harbinger of your self today? I mean, in some sense, I'm like still doing the 10 chain. I, I don't oh, know. Really? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a huge component of what I do as a mathematician. Not all pure mathematicians think that way. But that's what sets me apart, I think, from maybe other sciences or what applied mathematicians do. Mm -hmm. So you think of yourself as a builder mm -hmm. in, in what sense? You're building imaginary worlds with mathematical patterns underlying them? Is that what you mean? Well, they don't feel imaginary. So it's some cross between discovery and building that is my experience of doing math. What are you building? Well, I can be building an example of some mathematical phenomenon, an example uh -huh. of something that displays certain features that sort of exists in the mathematical universe. Or I could yeah. be building a proof. Uh -huh. And usually it's a kind of a cross between. I'm usually not saying, I'm going to prove this thing. And then I set about building the proof. I mean, what I prove sort of depends on what I discover along the way. I was really interested in hearing about Amy's own trajectory to becoming the mathematician that she is today. And that journey took her through what turned out to be something of a trial by fire as a university student at Harvard. A lot of people who go to Harvard experience is just realizing you're not like the smartest person in the room, you know, so you have to mm -hmm. learn how to get over yourself. It was a little hard being a woman in mathematics in the 1980s, you know, in college, in a university, and especially a university that didn't have any women on the faculty research faculty, yeah. you know, someone to look up to and just sort of say, oh, yeah, right, like, this is normal, I belong. So at Harvard, though, I take it you were probably one of those, like, whiz kid freshmen, and you were put in some maybe rigorous linear algebra class or something like that? Yeah, I took the advanced linear algebra class and calculus class, and I did very well in that class because I already knew all of that. I'd done it before. It wasn't until my sophomore year when things started to fall apart. The director of undergraduate studies when I was there was, he probably was quite sexist because I've heard stories of what he had told other mm. people. For example, when I told him I wanted to go to graduate school, which I had decided at the very end of my experience at Harvard. And he launched into this whole description of how the world of mathematics is a giant pyramid. And there's mm -hmm. like very few people at the top and there are a lot of people at the bottom. And as long as you don't mind being at the bottom, be my guest. 
<laughs> you <No>. know, like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, thanks for the encouragement. I have to say, though, that probably did spur me to, like, go get a f-ing PhD and, you know, sorry, i got to watch my language, but, you know, that was pretty uh, discouraging. But he, he had said, in fact, far more discouraging things to other women. I, I think he just was very, like, old school, mm. like, there's a pyramid, which is yeah. kind of not true, you know? I'm interested in that. You would say it's not true. Yeah. It doesn't look like that to you today. Well, I, yes, in some ways it does, in the sense that the uh, inequities you see in things like income are also seen in like the kind of jobs that people have in academia. You know, so mm-hmm. you have this huge number of people in untenured positions who are treated like shit. Um, and then, you know, the very lucky few who have tenured professorships at group one research institutions. So in some sense, I belong to the, the lucky few. But I don't think that this pyramid is so much based on merit. I mean, to some extent it is, but a lot of it is luck. Yes. You know? <laughs> I, I have to agree with you on that one. Um, yeah. Huh. I would never say something that like that to an undergraduate. I, saying there's a pyramid implies that there's sort of one linear direction that is up. And higher uh-huh. is good, but like but any other discipline, it's always multidimensional, you know, the ways yes. that you can measure people's talents. Or That's gifts. so true. I love that vision of yours that, I mean, it's very geometric as suits <laughs> you, I think, in some ways, that it's such a simplistic thing to think of it as a one-dimensional line with a direction from lower to higher. Mm-hmm. So I was a freshman at Princeton, which would be pretty analogous yeah. to your being a freshman at Harvard. And, and what um, year was this, by the way? So I was a freshman in 1976, okay. 77. So, and mm-hmm. I took the WizKid linear algebra class. Mm-hmm. The book that we used for this subject of linear algebra didn't have any pictures. I think literally the whole book had no oh, pictures. Ouch. And yeah, that didn't work for me as a visual kind of person. And the subject actually is extremely visual. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I was completely creamed in that course. I couldn't understand anything. I was really intimidated because I saw other kids raising their hand, and they seemed to know what the answers were. And so I really got this feeling of imposter syndrome. I'm interested interesting. in you said that because, because what really kind of knocked me off my feet was abstract algebra. The, the teacher in the algebra course, so it was, he was doing group theory. Okay, so group theory, to me, is dynamics. It's dynamical. Where do groups come from? Symmetry groups, motion. It's extremely visual. But um, he taught it in a very symbolic way. Um, and mm-hmm. when he got to the idea of cosets, <laughs> I just, I couldn't get it. I just didn't get it. I couldn't understand yeah. what kind of thing a coset was. And sure. I, I got knocked off my feet. So should we try this? Let's do a little math okay. over the, uh, the, uh, over the uh, airwaves here. What do you mean by group theory? Uh-huh. Let's give it a try. A group is a, an abstract mathematical object invented by mathematicians. But really what it is, is it's a collection of moves that you yeah. can do. Okay. And you can combine the moves and get a new move. So a group is a collection of moves. Let's say you've got a triangle. Like an equilateral Let's, let's do something. So an equilateral triangle. Right. So 
um, how can you move that triangle? So you take those those corners, which are called vertices, and you, you label them one, two, three. And you imagine all the ways that you can move that triangle to get another triangle. You might end up rearranging the, the numbers on the, you know, like for example, I could take the cor- that triangle and I could rotate it by 60 degrees or 120, uh, <laughs> which yeah, one? Yeah, right, 120, 120. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You could right. rotate it by 120 and then line the new corners up to each other. And that would be a move. And it would change okay. the numbers. So, okay. So the only allowed moves are things that put the triangle back on top back of on itself. Back on top of itself. So you okay. could rotate the triangle by 240 degrees. And that would be a different move. But if you rotated the triangle by 360 degrees, you'd be back to the original uh-huh. triangle. So yeah. that's a move, but it's what you would call the identity. It's a special move that doesn't change anything. But mm-hmm. I could also take a rota- triangle and I could flip it. So mm-hmm. I could sort of pick it up, turn it over, and put it back down. And... Uh-huh. One of the numbers, the number at the top stays the same, but the other two numbers switch. That's another move. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. anyway, you can combine these moves to get other moves. And the set of all moves is called a group, and it has properties. The thing is that everyone sees groups, even like little grade school kids see groups. The groups they see is like numbers, so you can think of numbers as being moves. Like, for example, the number one, you can think of as I take my number line and I add one to everything in the line and I move it to the right. Hmm. Okay. So one is rather than thinking of one as a quantity, you think of one as take a step take to a the s- right from wherever you take are. Take the whole line and move it to the right. Yeah. Or, yeah. And that's interesting the way you say it. You think of it very holistically that yeah. it's not just... Like I started at zero and now I take a step to the right. You think of every point. I just what of the whole take numbers. All the numbers and like I've got my hands on that number line and I move it to the right. That's wow. one. So an infinite number of numbers all shift all one shift. step to the right. Yeah, and then zero okay. is just you don't move it at all. If you did the zero move, the zero move, and the minus one move yeah. is just move everything to the left. Okay. So. If you think of groups as moves, then they're very natural things. If you start thinking in this way, it's very easy to understand concepts and groups. If you think Mm -hmm. as groups as being generalizations of numbers, then a lot of things are very confusing. The thing about numbers is they're just, they represent so much more than just moves. And so, if you try to think of them as just a group, but you don't realize what the rules are, it it gets huh. so. You're saying because numbers are so overloaded already with other kinds of meanings and associations, exactly. Whereas moves are just moves are just moves, moves. are just moves. If you always think of your group in terms of moves, then you don't do stupid things. <laughs> so, for example, like. Numbers are what's called an abelian group. You know, 2 plus 9 equals 9 plus 2. 
Right, and this was the thing I was missing. Yeah. In multiplication, in my case, yeah. the multiplications of numbers could also form a certain kind of group. So two times nine, I didn't realize, was nine times two. Right. And that kind of thing is just very rarely true with groups. Ah. Like, if I take my triangle and I flip it, I rotate it, and then I flip it again. Yeah. That's not the same as the rotating. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, a different way to say what you just said is you could... You could flip and rotate, or you could rotate and flip. Yes. And the order matters. Yes. Elements of groups aren't quantities. They don't behave no. like quantities. They behave like moves. And everyone's comfortable with the idea that, you know, if you do one thing and then you do another thing, it's not the same as you can't switch <laughs> the order, you know. Um, <laughs> you put on your underwear, yeah, or you put on your pants. It's not the same as the pants <laughs> and the underwear. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Yeah. When we get back, some really flaky ideas about puff pastry. That's ahead. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quantum Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quantum Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantummagazine.org. Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. You are known for work in an area of math called dynamics or dynamical systems, which it seems to me has a lot to do with the notion that you've just been talking about with moves. But but tell us, first of all, what do you mean by a dynamical system? And what are the moves that that would come into play there? One kind of abstract concept I have to throw out there is the notion of a space, which could be just a collection of the vertices, the corners of a triangle, (laughs) or it could be something very complicated, like the collection of all configurations of the solar system in position and velocity, Mm -hmm. which would be a very high-dimensional space. So there's a notion of a space, or maybe just the surface of a ball could be a space. And then there's Usually, just one move that you single out that you want to study. So you could take the ball and you could rotate a little bit in some direction. And that's your move. And then you're stuck. You have to, you want to study what that move does to that space. So if you were studying the solar system, you want to say that the move is, I'm just going to apply the law of physics. Uh, right. <laughs> and I just want to, and it's in some configuration. The sun is here, this planet's here, this planet's here. They're moving in this direction at this speed. And then the law of physics sort of tells you where that's going to be, say, a minute later. Right, that's, that's the, move. the move. Just let the clock tick. Yeah, yeah let, let the, the clock, clock tick, tick and everything will move exactly. a little. Exactly. But of course, then yeah. you're in a different configuration. So you're going to move in a 
very different way, possibly, depending on where you are, what configuration you're in. But that's it. You're given a space uh, and you're given some move and you want to see what happens in the long term. This is such a fantastic mathematical concept, space. But when I think when a lot of folks hear space, they're thinking about outer space Mm -hmm. or it could mean I'm walking around in this nice space in my basement. Yeah. You know, but I think when you're talking about space, you mean like a collection of possibilities. Yeah. In a certain sense, yes. right? It's a it's sort of the totality of all the ways that something can be. That that together collectively forms this collection is a space of possibilities. Right. So or something. The collection of possibilities is a way of explaining state space, which is the type of space that would arise if your dynamical system came from physics. Yeah. I really just mean okay. set. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that set could be, have lots of structure and be very complicated. It could be the three vertices of a triangle. It could be a circle. Or it could be a collection of possibilities of a physical system. Mm-hmm. So here are all the okay. possible positions and, and velocities of these planets that are existing in some ideal system with no external forces you have to ignore or else, you know, you have to simplify. But uh, Right. You say, this is the thing I'm studying, and I'm going to ignore the effect of Alpha Centauri. Exactly. You know, I mean, because everything in the universe influences everything else, but that's too much to think about all at once. Right. But dynamics, you know, dynamics is just studying... A single move that you do on a set and seeing what happens when you do that move over and over and over and over. And if you think of doing that move over and over as being the evolution of time, then you can address a question like, given the current configuration of our solar system, how long will it take until Mercury goes retrograde or whatever? How, is it uh-huh. for how long will this be stable? Yeah. So that's a long-term kind of dynamical question, not the questions that I type of question I look at, but but that's the nature but, of the questions that I look at. Usually, we hear about in the world of horoscopes and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for the astrologers, they're very interested in where is Jupiter and where is Mars and where are they in relation to each other? Is this one in that one's house? You know, all that stuff. But it's like, where are all the planets? But this is on timescales of human life, you know, over Mm -hmm. years or months. But you're talking about, you know, after millions of years, will will Jupiter just fly away and not be part of the solar system anymore? Right. Or will will Mercury go flying into the sun or something like that? It's great. I can bring up these examples because you're an applied dynamicist. So you're like my Google or my Wikipedia. <laughs> I can pose these, and then you can answer <laughs> what's the state of the art. Well, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> these are certainly questions people have worked on for yeah, ages. But you, yeah. So what I love about what you're doing is that, to me, you're like a kind of an artist who, who cleans away the – like, who cares about Jupiter, really? I mean, yes, it's interesting in some ways if you're interested in astronomy or astrology. <laughs> But you, for you, the points are a little more disembodied. Like you're interested in pure motion. It's a very stripped down, and yet it's still so rich because there's a lot that can happen 
when you just repeat emotion again and again and again. Right. So I, I have an example I would think might be fun for us to talk sure. about that's sort of in the spirit of what you were talking about with the twisting the sphere. But I find it a, it's a visual that might be helpful here to get us into some of the nitty-gritty of your work, which is to take dough and then a rolling pin. Mm. And if I start rolling out, like imagine I'm going to make pastry. Right. Or, right? So you want to take it from there? Well, sure. Um, yeah, I was thinking of, of the, the puff pastry slash croissant. So this is a, a beautiful way of describing a very strongly chaotic set of moves. The moves are very simple. You, you take your dough, you roll it out so that it, it starts out in a square. You roll it out so it's a longer rectangle. You make it three times longer. And then you okay. fold the top in and the bottom in the way you would fold an envelope. But you can mm. picture if you made it three times longer, then when you fold the top and the bottom like an envelope, you get a square again. Oh, that's right? nice. So that's a move yeah. on a square of dough. Oh, that's nice. That's like the way you said with the equilateral triangle. When you rotate it, it still looks... Yeah, it still looks like, like a triangle. You, you've just folded this thing so that the square is still on top of itself, but you stretched it out by three and then folded the... Yeah. Okay, I so like it. That's you took a, nice a square picture. of dough. You began with a square of dough, and you ended with a square of dough, the same square of dough. Mm-hmm. So you could just mm-hmm. do that over and over again. And in fact, that is what pastry makers do when they make puff pastry. Um, So they roll it out to three times the length. You put uh, in the middle, you put a little square of butter, and then you fold the top and the bottom. And that's the thing you start with. Okay, so it's not quite just a a piece of dough. It's a piece of dough with a little packet of butter in the middle. Oh, okay, yeah. And then to make it into puff pastry... You repeat this move of rolling it out, folding it in. Now you have a square again. Roll it out, fold it yeah. in. You usually refrigerate it in between moves. Wait, do I put a piece of butter in every time? No, or only you don't, the first just time? basically the first time. Okay, And yeah. so what happens is you always have to end up with a square of the same thickness, but it looks different if you look at it from the side. You start it with just one <laughs> chunk of butter. But yeah. the effect of these moves over and over is to distribute this butter. Like, think about it after one move. So you have dough, butter, dough, dough, or something. So basically, you have two pieces of dough and some butter in the middle. First, roll it out. So you have a long piece of butter with dough on top and dough on bottom. But now oh. when you fold it, that butter gets folded. So there's three layers of butter That's great. separated by dough. <laughs> um, Very delicious. This is good. good, right? If you think about it, the next iteration, you will have nine layers of butter separated by dough, and then twenty-seven. Each time you multiply the number of layers by three, mm. and you stop at a certain point, and then you can roll it out and cut it into shapes. And what happens is, in the oven, the butter melts and it produces steam. And it oh. separates the layers of the dough. And so it puffs up. Oh, that's where the puff comes from? And puff pastry is the steam? Yeah. You know, the fat plays some important role in, like, making the layers crispy as well. But it's the steam from the, from the liquid and the butter. The end result of this fantastic process of the 
stretching by three and then repeated folding mm-hmm. and doing this over and over, is you get this very flaky structure made of very thin sheets. But there was something you said in an interview I read somewhere that I really liked, which was that one of the things you find beautiful about dynamics is that the shapes that result, like in this case, the puff pastry shape, mm-hmm. contain, I don't know quite how you said it, it was something like, the shape itself gives you a kind of history or leaves a trace yeah. of what the process was that made yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is actually a metaphor for some of the math that you think about, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good metaphor because this move, this rolling up and folding, is uh, a type of dynamical system that we call hyperbolic. And the word hyperbolic is used because if you kind of look at what happens in cross-section to this square of dough, um, you have one direction that's kind of being stretched out every mm-hmm. time you do a move, and another that, that's sort of getting skinnier, right? Because when you roll something out to three times its length, keeping the width fixed, it gets a third of the thickness. Yeah. Because you conservation of dough, which is an important right. right? <laughs> and so this combination of stretching in one direction and contracting in the other is an example of what we call hyperbolicity. And the main features of a hyperbolic system is that you have this type of stretching and contracting behavior kind of everywhere you look. And when you have that kind of hyperbolicity, it leads to what is popularly known as chaos. You say popularly known like you don't want to go slumming with us. (laughs) Well, it's a a joke because everyone uses the term chaos, but it's not really defined. No one's really, I I would say there's no fixed definition. And then in the movie Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum <laughs> described himself as a chaos theorist, yes, which I don't think exists. <laughs> I, I mean, chaos is a decent term. What it's indicating <clears throat> is that when you apply your set of moves over and over again, there's a high amount of unpredictability in the long term. How so in this case? In, in the case of the rolling dough? Yeah. yeah I mean, if you think about where an individual molecule of butter ends up in the long term. That's it, right? And, or, you know, I wish we had such things as units of butter. So we could say, well, where's this little butter guy going to end up versus his neighbor? I see. So you can have two little pieces (laughs) of butter that start out close together and end up in very different layers. So you imagine like each piece of butter has an address if you do this like a hundred times, there's going to be two to the one hundredth layers, right? In theory, wow. right? So each molecule of butter All gets right. his own address for where he ends up. And what does chaos mean? It means where one molecule ends up and where his neighbor ends up are seemingly unrelated. It's wild. Isn't that wild? I mean, just this simple thing done over and over. You know, you like if, yeah, you started with all the, the, it could be a very tiny pad of butter originally. So in that sense, it's like we know the state of where the butter is to a very good approximation. Yet after a small number of these operations, these moves, 
the butter could be essentially anywhere in the universe defined by the puff pastry. Yeah. That's pretty chaotic. And yet the basic mechanism that generated it is very basic. It's just repeated rolling and stretching and compression and keep doing it. That's right. I feel like you, that's one of your signature moves. Speaking of moves, the Amy Wilkinson move (laughs) is to look for a general mechanism, sort of the hidden pattern underneath the chaos. Yeah. It's really satisfying for me as a person who also works in dynamical systems to listen to Amy talk about this geometric picture that she has for the general mechanisms underlying chaos. You know, we're not really interested in puff pastry. Why are we talking about this? Because puff pastry is is this metaphor that captures the essence of what we're trying to understand when we simulate the turbulent motion of the atmosphere or the motion of hurricanes, you know, across the sea, and and where are they going to hit land? All those things are very difficult to predict. And it seems puzzling in a way because we can predict eclipses. We can predict lots of other things that seem as complicated as the weather. But there's something about chaotic systems that makes them hard to predict. And Amy gets at the essence of what that is with her geometric and visual pictures. Think about this blob of dough that that is being subjected to Amy's imaginary rolling pin. When you push down on the dough with the rolling pin, part of the the dough is going to get compressed. The part that's under the pin is getting squashed. Part of it is getting stretched, the part that's getting rolled out. And part of it, the third direction, nothing is really happening. That's the direction along the length of the rolling pin, right? When you roll a rolling pin, you stretch out the dough in the rolling direction, but sideways along the pin, the dough doesn't get pushed sideways to the left or right. The third direction. So if it's not stretched or contracted or at all, like in the perfect description I was giving, you stay in your lane yeah. so the butter doesn't move. So if there was any sort of unevenness when you started in the butter layer in that direction, it doesn't get rectified by this Mm -hmm. rolling process. Yes. But if you allow yourself a little wiggle room, and this is a theme of my work, if you allow yourself a little wiggle room, you you mix up that direction as well. What does that mean, allow yourself? What is this theme? It's a theme that I actually learned from my advisor, Charles Pugh, and his collaborator, Mike Shoup, who was also a collaborator of mine. And that is that a little hyperbolicity goes a long way to produce mixing and other kind of chaotic behaviors. So Mm -hmm. partial hyperbolicity only has the stretching and the contracting in these two directions. And the idea is, well, it's not always going to be mixed up in that third direction. But if you just are a little bit sloppy in how you roll in that third direction, that'll also get mixed up because just a little bit of sloppiness in the third direction allows the hyperbolicity in the other two directions to mix things up. Can I try to say what I think I'm hearing? I, I mean, I don't know that I have the right picture. The picture I'm having in my head is you could imagine a robotic cook who has a rolling pin and always rolls it perfectly in one direction. That's not what you're going to do. You're going to be sloppier than that. You're going to have someone who's trying to roll the pin in a straight line, but who gets distracted by something on the television. And so they roll kind of off in a sort of a little bit sideways. Yeah. 
I don't know. Is, am I going yes, in the right direction going with this? In the right direction with this. Or if you look at how how puff pastry is made industrially, they have like this infinitely, you know, this endless thin stream of dough that's been rolled to a thin a thinner length. And they roll it on top of itself. They kind of imagined having a very long piece of dough and just folding it, a continual sheet of thin dough. And you fold it on top of yourself, but you kind of go back and forth. Like imagine (laughs) you had as much dough as you wanted and you took the thing and you folded it back, but you kind of didn't come back to where you started. You kind of shifted a little bit. I see. So that's the sloppy. A little sloppy. You, you do it over to the side. And then you yeah, sort of do side. it over to the side again. And you do it over to the side. And you do it. And so you kind of, it, it kind of overlaps itself. So it's kind of stretching. But mm-hmm. it's also, there's some shearing or kind of. Yes, yes. And, and then you stop at a certain point and you roll that thin again and you cut it into a long sheet. I don't know how these things work. But, but sort of that moving things over a little to the side and not exact that's enough to mix things up in that third direction as well. I see. I see. So that's what you mean about the theme that a little bit of hyperbolicity goes a long way. You can you don't have to be wildly careful in that third direction. Just just a little bit gets you gets the job done. It gets the job done because once you move something over a little bit, then you have the yeah. stretching and you can sort of picture it. It just the 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 chaotic motion in the other directions just like yeah. spins it to some other random place and then it gets moved to the next layer. And and so right. there's some, yeah. Does this have anything to do with this photograph I've seen of a, a pillow in your office? Ah, or is that something else? Yeah, it does. So what is that? Tell us about the pillow. Okay, so that's a picture of, I have to describe it. So it looks like yeah, yeah. hair. It looks like I've taken a photograph of like kind of mathematical hair, and it's sort of <laughs> spilling down from the top to the bottom of the pillow. And yeah. each um, each strand of hair is like a, a curve. And so um, it, I called. So I wrote. I produced this weird mathematical hair with my friend collaborator Mike Shub, and. Um, we wrote a paper about it, and we had some boring title for the paper, uh, <laughs> Stably Bernoullian Diffeomorphism That's Not an Ossoff. And the... <laughs> not going to... Yeah. yeah, that's not catchy. Not catchy. <laughs> and, the, and the referee kind of thought, you know, the interesting thing about this paper is not the Stably Bernoullian that is not an Ossoff, but this weird foliation that we produce that has these bizarre properties. And so it suggested that we kind of change the focus. And so Mike came up with the title, Pathological Foliations and Removable Zero Exponents. So he coined this term pathological foliation. Getting better. Much yeah, better. that's getting better. Much better. So that is a, um, a picture of a pathological foliation. So when Amy speaks about pathological foliations, remember that in a foliation, we're talking about leaves. You know, and you shouldn't think of leaves that fell off a tree. You should think of leaves of a book, sheets, like the sheets in the puff pastry, the many flaky layers. And what's pathological about pathological foliations is that the sheets don't sit together nicely. They don't behave like the pages in a book that are all orderly. They get kind of crinkly. 
and nasty and fractal and complicated in a way that captures the essence of the chaos that's going on underneath, but that is very difficult to think about visually and geometrically. Yet that's exactly what Amy managed to solve with her math. So foliation here, the leaves are like the hairs. Yes, which is, it doesn't, it, it doesn't translate very well, does it? You, you don't really think Not of so leaves well. as being hairs. But maybe no. better is to think of the <laughs> leaves of a book. Yes. Okay, you know, they stack one on top of the other. That's right. And if you were to actually look at a book sideways, you'd see lines, right? Little lines, one yep. for each page. So that would be an example of a foliation by curves. There would be lines. So now imagine you taking your book and kind of warping it a little bit. And so uh -huh. the lines get all kind of, they're warped. And they all fit together to make a book but they're no longer straight. Okay, now picture that on a pillow. <laughs> um, and that's the pathological foliation. It's a really nice looking textile, actually. I mean, pathological makes it sound like something you wouldn't want on a pillow, but <laughs> it's very pretty, I, I thought. I think it's pretty, yeah. Next time on The Joy of X, Quantum physicist Charlie Marcus tries to demystify the wave-particle duality. You know, someone shows you a, 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 a squirrel, and you say, oh, is it a rat yeah. or is it a cat? I don't understand. Is that a rat or is it a cat? The answer is, it's not a rat or a cat. It's a squirrel. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>